This morning, we are wrapping up our series on the parables. We spent all summer looking at the teachings of Jesus, the stories of Jesus. We, we've kind of highlighted this series saying, you know what, one of the maybe underrated aspects of Jesus was how good a teacher he was and how good a storyteller he was, how he could take uh, a, a deep spiritual truth and make it really accessible by putting it in a story, in a parable. And we've said that's the point of the parables, is to, 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 to draw into a, like a comparison or a metaphor in our minds these, these deep spiritual truths that may seem hard to grasp, but man, I can, I can picture weeds, a lot of them. I can, I can understand many of the stories that Jesus told. So we're wrapping it up this week with, with one last parable in Luke 15 here. We often know it, and I'm looking at my Bible here, and it's titled, The Parable of the Lost Son. Now, I've been at Trinity for about five years. I've been preaching here five years, a little bit longer at, at a previous church. And one thing that I've never tried to do is try to, like, make a statement for shock and awe and then kind of go on with that. I think some teachers maybe try to do that. I'm, I'm going to lift up the Bible, and we're going to teach the Bible, and we're going to learn from the Bible, and we're going to try and do what it says. So let me suggest, cautiously, I think that title of this parable is incomplete bordering on incorrect. Okay, not, not shock and awe. And here's, here's why I think that. Let me prove it to you from the Bible. We're still in the Bible. Let's read the first verse of the parable. Luke 15, verse 11. We read, a man had two sons. We'll stop there. I know there are some teachers. If you were uh, giving this phrase as an assignment to your students in English class and asking them the question, who is this story going to be about? What would they say? There's probably two answers. Either a man or two sons. Perfect, you're all with me. <laughs> this is one of the most popular parables. And I would suggest you don't even have to be a part of a church, even necessarily around a church, to be familiar with the story, at least the part of it that we're all familiar with. We've kind of romanticized the middle part of the story, right? We've called it the prodigal son because we look at this and we see the story of, of this kid who's gone off the deep end and a father running out to them and welcoming him home. It, it strikes a chord in our hearts because many of us identify with that younger son. And we've, we've looked and we've said, man, my life was a disaster. Or maybe it, it is a disaster. But when I read this story that's supposed to be describing to me a deeper spiritual truth, and I see this father running out to greet this son that's wasted everything, maybe, just maybe, the father that this story is hinting to, God, maybe he'd run out to me too. We love that. And we should. And as we think about it, our, our eyes water. I mean, I've, I can't tell you how many times my eyes have watered preparing this morning, just thinking about who God is and what he's done. And we may even get to another alternative title for the parable at the end, but we'll see how, if we get there. But we love it. But this is week, I think, eight or maybe nine of our parables series. And almost every week I've said there are three things we have to remember when we read a parable. The first is most important. Do you remember what it is? We need more weeks of parables, apparently. <laughs> the most important thing is that we listen to the story with whose ears? Can more people's ears? First century Jewish ears. 
Because if we don't listen to it the way that the original hearers would have heard this story, we will miss things. And so we want to put ourselves into the place of those original hearers. And when we do that, and when we study this text, we'll find that Jesus isn't just telling a warm, fuzzy story of redemption, although that's a piece of it. But he is also looking out at his crowd and absolutely exploding the normal categories for how people approach God. So let's look at it. We're going to read this text, and we'll see how Jesus shows us two kinds of people, two kinds of lostness or running from God, but still just one way home. That's where we're going. Two kinds of people, two kinds of lostness, one way home. If we want to start into this text, we actually can't start at this part in verse 11. We need to back up to the beginning of chapter 15. So let me start reading Luke 15, verse 1. Read this. All the tax collectors and sinners were approaching to listen to him. And what's implied there is they just kept coming. It didn't matter that Jesus sat down this time. Wherever Jesus sat down, the tax collectors and the sinners just kept coming to hear from him. And verse 2, and the Pharisees and scribes, now before we go on, because this is important, it's really easy for you and I to read the New Testament, see the word Pharisees and scribes. And I heard a pastor once say, whenever we read Pharisees, in our heads goes, dun, 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 right? Like, like some mystery soundtrack of there's trouble coming, right? And we think, man, those guys, they were just, they were wrong all the time. They just missed it. These are the church people. And the Pharisees and scribes, some things never change, were complaining. This man, Jesus, welcomes sinners and he eats with them. How dare he? This is really the setting for the parable, for the whole chapter, but especially the parable that we're about to read. The religious people, the church people, were complaining about Jesus again. But the tax collectors and the sinners, they just kept coming. They just kept gathering around to hear what Jesus had to say because, because he, he talked about them and he gave them value and purpose and he loved them. And so notice how these two groups from verses 1 and 2 will correspond and represent the two sons in our parables. We've got the tax collectors, we've got the sinners. These are the younger brothers, the younger sons. These are the guys who have been breaking all the rules. These are the guys who are, are used to wild living. They go against the cultural norms of the day of good Jewish culture. They're living for themselves. They've decided, you know what? Whatever I think makes me happy, I'm going to go do that. That's what's right for me. Sound familiar? Some things never change. And the Pharisees and the scribes, the church people, they are represented and correspond to the older brother. These are the guys that followed all the rules. They made all the rules to make sure they followed all the rules. They, they stuck with the traditional morality. They followed the Jewish faith and teaching and understanding. They were deeply devoted to studying and to obeying the Bible and to praying and to, to worship. They did all the right things. So let's look at the story and try to add maybe or, or see some first century understanding here. And we'll start with the younger son. Again, this is probably the part of the story most of us are most familiar with. 
We jump down to verse 12, and the younger son says, Father, give me the share of the estate that I have coming to me. Now, if my son said that to me today, I would be put off. It would not be a happy conversation, I, like, and I would be devastated as a father. I don't know how many times we could multiply those feelings to understand what this first century father would have felt. It is a, 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 a culture steeped in honor and shame, in respect for your elders, and respect for family. There's, there's no reason that a father should actually give in to this request, and it is well within that father's rights to now throw that son out, maybe even disown him, probably definitely punish him, perhaps in a way that would get us in trouble today, especially it being the younger son that's asking this question, because there's hierarchies, there's rules. Maybe the firstborn could kind of get away with it, but even that, no. This was the son coming to his father and saying, I am tired of your rules. Someday you will die. You're dead to me now. I want my stuff. Jewish hearers would have been shocked and appalled that a son, a younger son, would dare think these thoughts in private, let alone actually go to his dad and make the comments. What does the father do? So the father distributed the assets to them. Or to him, excuse me. This, this was unheard of. This was not a thing. This didn't happen. Now in those days, because of culture and tradition, the firstborn got a double share of whatever the inheritance was. So we've got two sons. So all of a sudden, the father has to liquidate one-third of his entire estate to give his younger son his wishes. This wasn't just he walked down to the bank and withdrew a little bit of money and then wrote a check to his son and said, okay, that's, this is what I had saved for you and your brother. Here's your half. He had to sell things, land, maybe animals, maybe even they had to move. I don't they had like this was significant. A third of everything he got. And in those days, your your property defined you as a family too. Again, it was honor and shame. And, and if all of a sudden I'm liquidating a third of what I own, something's wrong in that family. But he did it. We don't know how long it took. But we read that not many days later, he did it quickly, not many days later, the son gathered all that he had and traveled to a distant country. The son got what he wanted. He's out of dad's house. He can do whatever he wants. He can go wherever he wants. He can decide what's right and wrong. He can decide what's good for him, and he will do whatever he wants. Now, our culture today, many of us are like this younger son. Forget about living under the umbrella of, like, God. But we're, we're well past that. We're beyond, we're into the era of forgetting about living under the burden of absolute truth. You know what? I'm tired of truth. I'm going to go my way, and I'm going to find my truth. And I'm going to live what's right for me, and I'm going to do what's right for me. And if it feels good, I'm going to do it, because I'm going to define right and wrong. And the highest virtue in our culture today is whatever I feel is true. And it's everywhere. And I, I'm not totally sure how we got here, 
but it's a disaster because I'm not that smart. So the younger son goes away to find himself. Maybe he left the father's compound in small town Alberta and he moved to Canmore. Because if I go to Canmore, I'm going to bike all summer. I'm going to ski all winter. The nightlife is great. There's people from all over the place here. There's people I may meet once and then I'll never see them again. And I'm going to just live it up. So he goes somewhere to find himself. We don't tell how long it took, but in verse 13, we find that he, in finding himself, wasted all his money on wild living. I don't think I need to elaborate or define what wild living might encompass for you here. Whatever you think it might be, it's in there. Throw it all in the pile. Then a famine hit the land, and the son had nothing. He went to work, and he was sent to feed pigs. Now, you and I might think, that sounds like a dirty job. Pigs are stinky, but bacon's good. But this was the lowest of the lowest of the low jobs for a Jew. It could not get worse, and that's the point. And even at that point, they, they, were, they, were, they were unclean, they were dirty animals, and we read that he longed even to just eat their food. He was so distraught, so broke, that he wanted to eat the pig's food, and no one would give him anything. Verse 17, he finally read that he came to his senses, and he said, how many of my father's hired workers have more than enough, but here I am dying of hunger. He says, I'll go to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son, but make me like one of your hired workers. This, this is repentance here. He, he repents. He recognizes that he has been wrong, and he recognizes that there are consequences for him being wrong. Not just that he's lost everything, but look, he's gonna, I'm going to go to my dad and say, I am not even worth being your kid anymore. I know that. He says, let me, just, let me just work for you. And maybe somehow I can kind of work and pay back what I've, what I've taken and lost. And maybe someday I can be something again. So he got up and he went to his father. One of the most beautiful verses in the Bible, verse 20. But while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. And he ran to him. And he threw his arms around his neck and he kissed him. We love this part of the story, as we should. But the Jews that heard it in the first century, when Jesus first told the story, they would have been, I don't even know what the right word is, I wrote down disgusted. First of all, this kid is probably still covered in pigsty. But even more than that, Middle, no self-respecting Middle Eastern man would run, ever, or show this kind of compassion, or, or all these things. They would have been like, this isn't right. This, this is not a father. I heard a story of one pastor who was, who was kind of telling this parable uh, in an effort to kind of explain the Bible to a Muslim friend. And they got to this point, and the Muslim said, whoa, 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 that would never happen. There's no, there's no way that would happen. Tell me what happens. It's, a, it's an attention-grabbing move. Some also suggest that in this moment, I don't know about you, but sometimes I have a hard time seeing God as father. My relationship with my dad has had its strains at times. Not all relationships with fathers are strained, but sometimes they are, right? 
Some people say that because it's hard for me to picture my God as a father, they're looking at this and saying, you know what, actually in this scene, the father in the parable, the God figure, is acting like a mother. He's going to his kids. This would be like a typical mother thing. He's running. He, he, he's the God. They, they knew God, Yahweh, as the God who's gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and, and, and filled with unfailing love. They, they had this in their head from Exodus chapter 4. Right? That's what God said his name was. But all of a sudden, maybe we can picture God a little bit differently because no man would run. And so the son's got this prepared speech to give, right? And, and he had it, we, we, he, he put it together probably in the, in the pigsty. We don't know how far the walk home was, but if it was me, the whole, that's all I'd be thinking about. Okay, dad's going to come out. He's going to be mad. I got to say this, and I got to say it quick. And I'm going to say this, and I'm going to say this, and it's all, and maybe, just maybe, it'll go okay. But the father cuts him off. He doesn't even, doesn't even get into his speech yet, does he? Verse 22, the father says, Quick, get the finest robe. And get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet. You know what the ring meant? Family. Then kill the calf that we've been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast, for this son of mine was dead, and now he's returned to life. He was lost, and now he's found. And so they partied. Now, a couple of things that we need to see here. When the younger son returned, the father didn't just ruffle his hair and say, oh, you were, you were a naughty boy, but it's okay. Rules are just whatever. In verse 21, we read that the son owned his mistakes. He does say, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. He knew he'd done wrong and that there were consequences. We also see that the father doesn't grudgingly accept an apology, right? Sometimes we're like this. You've offended me, you've hurt me, you come to apologize, and I'm like, I guess so. Like, but I'm keeping you on watch. The father doesn't even let him speak. He calls out for the best robe in the house. Whose would have that been? His. His best robe. He calls out that a, that a, that a ring would come and sandals would come. He, he's giving him family identifiers again. This kid is a son again. The, the fattened calf, we read, this isn't just like, well, we got one more seat at the table. Let's throw another steak on the barbecue because we got this other son here, right? This, this, this is a big deal. And I think the text reads like maybe they only had one. That, that calf that we've been fattening up for a party, now's the time, he's saying. I, and, and I, it was rare that a family would celebrate this way, and it wouldn't just be a, a family get-together. The whole town would have been invited. It'd be like, like a, I worked at a mill in, in Edmonton for a number of years, and there was one summer where one of the guys said, you know what, we're all getting together to celebrate getting through the summer, and he ordered a, ordered a pig. We had a pig roast out of the park. And this wasn't something that your, my family of four could just, you know, munch on for a couple of days. We needed everybody there to put this thing away. That's the kind of party. Or think, think of a big wedding reception where there's people from everywhere and everybody's celebrating and everybody's invited. The whole town would have been there. This is a big, big, big deal. Remember, this is a parable. And remember who Jesus' audience is. Verse 1 told us there were tax collectors and sinners in the audience. 
and they would have seen themselves in this younger son. They're starting to get glimpses of who Jesus is, how he's talking about the kingdom of God. And all of a sudden, this group that society looked at, that the church looked at as outsiders and lawbreakers and misfits and outcasts and sinners, they knew that Jesus was talking about them, but they caught that they were invited into the family. And they were invited to the party. And that they were being welcomed as sons and daughters. This is the beauty of the gospel. That you cannot be so far gone in wild living like the younger son, however you want to define wild living. You cannot be so far gone that you cannot turn back, repent, and come to Jesus and be welcomed into the family. Tax collectors and sinners throughout the Gospels, they caught this, they saw this, they loved it, and they kept coming to Jesus. We see all kinds of stories. Think of Zacchaeus. He knew he was a disaster. The wee little man, right? He, he knew, though, that he had to get to Jesus. And he did. And he was welcomed in. Think of the Samaritan woman. She was on the outskirts of every circle and category that they could have drawn. But Jesus welcomed her in. Story after story in the Gospels is Jesus doing exactly this to those who turn and come to him. They're family. They're in. And so here's a challenge for us who call ourselves church people. Do we have tax collectors and sinners coming to hear the gospel from us? Because Jesus did all the time. Or have we misrepresented, misspoken, falsely declared what the gospel is and it's pushing people away? to think, I'm a sinner. I could never be a part of that. That was like the hardest question to wrestle with in preparing for this moment. Now often when we read this story, we, we stop there. We celebrate the goodness and grace of God towards that younger son, as we should. It's a, it, it's a big, massive deal that blew everybody's understanding of how you got to God in those days, and it should still today as well. But who do we say the story's about? It's either about the father or it's about a father who had two sons. And there's two groups in Jesus' audience, the tax collectors and the sinners, and the church people. So let's talk about the older son. Verse 25. Now the older son was in the fields working. And when he started to head towards home, he heard music and dancing. This was not a small house party confined to the dining room. This, the, the sounds of this were everywhere. It, think, about, think about like Folk Fest here in Canmore. We were on holidays and we came back the Sunday night of Folk Fest and went for a walk. We live up this way. Folk Fest is down here. We were kilometers from the park, and I could hear clear as day, oh, Jim Cuddy's singing. Isn't that nice? It's the same kind of idea. It, the, the, the party just bounced down through the land, and he knew from however far away in the fields he was that something was going on at the house. And so he called one of the servants and said, hey, what's going on? And the servant replied, you'll never believe it. Your brother's come home. Your father's killed a fattened calf, and we are celebrating because your brother has come home. You know the disaster that he was. He's home, and we're celebrating. Now, I've told you often that Jesus' parables are designed to rattle us. 
a little bit, to shake us a little bit, because they definitely rattled those original hearers. Look at how the older brother responded to this news, that his wayward younger brother had returned. Verse 28. The older brother was angry and would not go into the party. To the point where his father had to come out to him in the fields and plead with him. And the older brother replied to his father, this is a bit of my own paraphrase, look, he didn't even call his dad father, which is, again, extremely rude in those days. Look, he says, how dare you welcome him back? How dare you party with him and celebrate him? I have slaved for you for years. I have never once disobeyed you, which is a funny thing to say when he is actively disobeying his father, inviting him into the party, but that's another, another thing. I've never once disobeyed you, and you have never let me celebrate with my friends. This outcast swallowed up a third of everything that's yours, and now he comes back, and he gets a party? He's gone away, and, and, and wild living is what we're told. In this section, in this part, verse 29, it actually talks about he's spent all his money on prostitutes. There's sexual sin happening here. The Bible speaks into that in many places, but here it is again. And the brother saying to his father, Remember who this is representing. The church speaking to God. How dare you show grace to that big of a sinner? I wonder how quiet the crowd was at that point. I bet it's a lot like, like this. Yikes. This son was extremely disrespectful. Again, again even if we're just looking at this from the honor-shame culture point, everyone in the crowd would now have expected the father to discipline him. And rightly so. But look at how the father responds. And I spent, I don't know how many times looking at this verse. And it shakes me every, every time. The father responds, look, my dear son. I think we just need to sit in that greeting sometimes. How often do we come to God and, and argue our case, as it were, for why things should be this way or that? God, what were you thinking here? I've done all this for you. Why am I still single? Why am I still struggling to meet my bills? Why didn't I get that promotion? Why are my kids going off? Why, why, why? All these things. God, how dare you run your universe this way? We might not actually say that out loud, but that's what we're saying to him. God, how dare you? And he comes back and says, my dear son, my dear daughter, He continues, everything I, everything I have is yours. Literally, I've, everything that was anyone else's, I gave to him and he lost it. Everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate. This is a big deal and, and you, you're missing it, my son. Your brother was dead. Now he's come back to life. He was, he was lost and now he's found. said at the start that we would see two kinds of people, two kinds of lostness, and only one way back to Jesus. And Jesus would be kind of radically blowing these categories and understandings in people's minds. And so we've, we've seen the two kinds of people and the two different brothers. 
But look at how Jesus then expands what sin even is, their understanding of sin, as we look at two kinds of lostness. So often when we think of sin, we think of what? Breaking the rules. Right? We define it maybe from an archer's perspective, missed the marks, I didn't, I didn't behave perfectly, I didn't do the right thing. But here, Luke 15 tells us that sin is more than that. It is actually just running from God. It is avoiding God. It is trying to escape God. It's saying to God, I don't need you. I don't want you. I think it's easier to see that sometimes in the younger brother. But why is the older brother so angry in verse 28? He feels like he has the right to tell his father how his father should run his estate, what his father should be doing with those robes and rings and calves. He's just as resentful of the way the father is running things as the younger brother was resentful of being ruled by his father. The younger brother took the inheritance and went away. But the older brother is following all the rules so that he would get his inheritance and do his things his own way. It's the exact same thing. One writer says, both were trying to escape the authority of the father. Both resented his control and rebelled. One did it by breaking all the rules, and the other did it by keeping them. Can you start to see how, how running from God, or, or running from uh, kind of out from under God, is, is maybe a better definition than just breaking the rules? Because there are plenty of religious church people that might obey all the rules, or are darn close, but in doing so, they're doing that to gain control over God. It's so that I can say, God, I've obeyed. I read my Bible. I did not go live in wild living. I gave money to the church. I showed up on Sunday. You owe me. Both of these brothers were simply using their dad for the stuff he would give them. One asked for it early, and one knew that it, similarly, one day dad's going to die, and if I'm a good son, it's all going to come to me. They both looked to what their father could give them for their ultimate joy instead of to the father himself. And religious people today do the same thing so often. And if I just behave well enough, God will have to love me, and I'll have to get to heaven, and I have to get that spouse, and I have to get that job, and I have to, have to, because I've obeyed. Both brothers ran from the father, different directions, but ran from the father for the same reason. But still, there's only one way back. The first thing we need is we actually need the father to come to us. We can't find our, make our way to the Father without him first coming to us. Look again at verse 20. The younger brother gets the kiss, the welcoming kiss from his father before he's even said a thing. Right? The father ran out to him. It's not our turning back to God that earns our love from him. It's that his love and his goodness lead us to repentance, lead us to turning back to him. And for the older brother, the stubborn one, the father runs out to him to bring him back. And so we need the father to come to us. And as you see in this story, he does. He will. The second thing 
We need the Father to come to us, but we also need to repent, not just of our sins, but of our righteousness. We need to recognize that, that some days we're like the younger brother, and we, we go do things because I want to do this, I think it's going to be fun, I think it's going to be good, I'm going to forget it, I won't do it. But some days we're like the older brother and say, I'm going to behave well enough and I'm going to earn good things from God because of my works. And so we need to recognize that some days we're both brothers. And so we confess the ways that we have looked to our good works to find our joy. Things that are not God himself, but things God has given us. And so we need the Father to come. We need to repent, not just of our sin, but of our own self-righteousness, which I suppose is a sin, if you want to kind of technically put those together. But then finally, we rely on and rejoice in what the Father has provided for us. Sometimes, I don't know if you've done this, but I've read the story and thought, man, that younger brother, he got off pretty easy. If I had come home to my dad, he wouldn't have been that kind to me, right? Like, we say, he went off, he wasted a third of the estate, he came home, said he's sorry, and he's back in the family. What kind of cheap grace is this? No punishment, welcomed in. I think this has also infiltrated the church. We think this way sometimes. I don't know about you, but some of the people I grew up with in church, we thought, you know what? I'm 20 years old. I got a lot of life ahead of me. If I read what this younger son did, I could run off and I could wildly live for, I don't know, a while. And then when things start to turn around, I'll just come back and say, sorry, God, and he has to forgive me. Let's do that. But how was the brother welcome back in the family? It wasn't simple, right? He came, he was given a robe, he was given a ring, he was given a calf, he was given the title of son again, which meant he was back in the family. Which meant he was back in the inheritance. Now, the father could do this, it was all well within his right to do this, but it was a great expense. And whose expense was it at? The older brother. Now all of a sudden, when the father said to the older son, everything I have is yours, he was speaking exactly literally. All that's left is yours. You know this. It's all yours. Every robe, every ring, every calf, every room, every square foot of land and house, it's all yours. Look what he says. But we had to celebrate. We had to celebrate. Your brother was dead. He's come back. He was lost, and now he's found. Here's the thing. A good older brother would have had no problem with the party. No problem with the party. A good older brother would have understood, like the father, that this was a big deal that this younger son had come back. And it was worth every penny of a lavish party to celebrate that. And you know what? A, a good older brother may not have even been in the field working because he may have been out looking for that younger son to bring him back. You know what one of the most tragic things of this parable is? I don't know if you've caught it. We're never told if the older brother comes to the party. We're never told if the church people, represented by the older brother, are celebrating with Jesus. If that doesn't rattle you, I don't know what will. So what about us? Are we stuck? Are we hopelessly somewhere between older brother and younger brother? 
No, absolutely we're not. But the good news is that we have a different older brother than the one in the story. We have Jesus, the true and better older brother. And that's the point of the parable. Jesus has shown the Pharisees here as he's told this story. He's shown the church people what they look like, that they're stuck in their self-righteous spirit, that they're alienated from the gracious heart of God, that they're not at the party. Again, these were the guys that knew the Bible. They knew how God named himself in Exodus 34, right? Gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, lavishing love onto the thousandth generation. And they're outside the party because they couldn't get that themselves. But Jesus isn't like that. Hebrews 2.11, we read that, that Jesus and the ones he makes holy, the ones that come to him, have the same father. Through Jesus, we are adopted as sons and daughters. That's why Jesus is not ashamed to call them, to call us, as we turn and follow him, brothers and sisters. Again, in the parable, the older brother probably shouldn't have been working. He should have been going after that younger brother to bring him home. Jesus is our true and better older brother, and he did exactly that. He came to this earth. He truly obeyed his father and never disobeyed him, not once. And so only Jesus has the right to say to the Father, everything that is yours is mine. But instead of claiming it all for himself and looking at us and saying, you guys really messed up. I'm going to have all this to myself. Instead, Jesus came and he searches for us. He crawls down onto this earth into the muck and the mire and the pigsty of our lives and he scoops us up out of the mud and he puts us on his shoulders to carry him home to carry us home and he sings with joy and in anticipation of the party that's going to happen when we get to be there with him again. And Jesus gives us his robe and his ring and his place and his wealth all at his own expense. And the more we grasp how we're like the older brothers sometimes, how we are the younger brothers many times, and what Jesus has done for us, that's what will transform us. Let me pray. Father God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this text. I, I thank you for parts of the Bible that aren't comfortable, that aren't easy to listen to, that don't simply just build us up, but that actually shake us, that actually rattle us, that actually make us think, that actually challenge us in our thinking and our understanding, that convict us. So Jesus, forgive me for all the times that I have been the older brother, where I've looked at others and said, how, how dare you offer them grace? Jesus, thank you for all the times where I have been the younger brother and you have been the true and better older brother and you've come and got me. Jesus, we pray these things all in your good name. Amen.